Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Good afternoon. Welcome. So I have some bad news. Uh, I don't, it doesn't seem like it's going to be that bad because it's not that crowded. Our AC is not working. Windows are open. It might get a little warm. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I am also aware that when it gets warm, people get sleepy. I won't, I won't be offended, you know, like it's being recorded. You could watch it later. Just, you know, embrace the snooze if you need to. Uh, but uh, uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Trevor. I'm one of the pastors here at Beacon. I'm so glad that you guys are here with us today as we continue our series called Fixer Upper. Uh, and where are my, my real Fixer Upper fans? Do we have any like, okay, we got, we got a few in, uh, in attendance today. So in Fixer Upper, there are three stars, they say. There's Chip. There's Joanna, and then there's the city of Waco, which nobody saw coming because it's Waco, and it's in Texas, you know? Like, but Waco plays a huge role in the Fixer Upper show. Chip and Joanna are outspoken that they are for Waco. Like, they are, are committed to rebuilding the city and bringing life and vitality to it. All of the homes that they renovate are in the city of Waco. Uh, they're, they're committed to seeing this place transformed, which is awesome. And, and they're starting to make some headway. They're, like, tourism is up, and, and it's like back on the map. People know where Waco is now. I still don't know where Waco is. I know it's in Texas. I, I couldn't point to it on a map, but, but we know about Waco, and, uh, and that's all exciting, but Chip and Joanna would be the, the first to admit there's a long way to go to see Waco, the city, transformed, and there's a lot of serious issues that need to be dealt with in, in the process. For instance, in Waco, one in four adults doesn't have a high school diploma. One in four. That's like one, two, three, four. And like, Maria, no high school education. Uh, yeah, I know. It's, uh, that's a serious problem that a couple of people fixing up homes isn't going to fix, right? Uh, or, or this, 30% of families with children in Waco, Texas, 30%, so it's almost like one out of three families lives below the poverty line. So it's like one, two, three, you live now below the poverty line. And your family, you have to care for them making uh, you know, just barely scraping by. This is a serious problem that two people fixing up homes isn't going to fix. Or, or get this, Waco, the city, is located in Texas. That's a serious problem that two people fixing up homes isn't going to be able to fix. But, but if they can get collaborators, if they can get people to come around them, people to buy into the, the vision and this mission, and they get the whole community, uh, this whole city working together for the good of the city, they can, they can really see tremendous transformation. Because you, you guys know, you understand the power of collaboration. Like They get to the point where they deal with some of these education issues, and they, they deal with the the poverty issues within the city, they can't get Waco out of Texas, but 
with enough people living the right way, they can maybe make Texas a little less Texas-y. Uh, you know, it's possible. Austin's been doing it for years. Like, you know, it's possible. You can do it. Uh, but it, it takes a team of people buying into the same mission and vision, this, this idea of collaboration. And you guys get it. You guys understand the power of collaboration, particularly the productive power of collaboration, right? When you get people together, you, there's no stopping them. There's no telling what they'll be able to accomplish. And this is what we see in Nehemiah. If you have a, a Bible and you want to open up to Nehemiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you're just joining with us, this whole Fixer Upper series is uh, a study on the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer, all right? He's a, an Israelite Hebrew, but he was the cupbearer to the, the king of Persia at the time. And at this moment in time, the Persian Empire is this massive, sprawling empire. And it is the most powerful empire in its day. And that empire is currently, uh, all of Israel and, and Jerusalem, all of that is under occupation by the Persian Empire. But Nehemiah, he was far off in a distant land as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And it was a really, really high position in this, this sprawling empire. But he heard that Jerusalem was in disrepair and that it was in disgrace and in trouble. And he was moved by that and compelled by that. He gave up his high position. And he went back to Jerusalem with the, this goal of rebuilding the walls of the city. So he gets there and he starts rallying the troops. And, and you start to see it all coming together in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. It's one of the, the gates of the wall. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, the son of Uriah and the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berakah. You guys are starting to see this picture that Nehemiah is not building a wall. That Nehemiah has got this group of people, the community of Jerusalem, all rallying together that they are together as, as collaborators building this wall together. And it goes on and it names all the, the many people involved, and Zadok and the men of Tekoa and Joiada and Meshulam and Ge the people of Gibeon and Mizpah and Uziel and Hananiah and Raphiah and Jedidiah and all these other names that I can't pronounce properly. Uh, the, just, the list goes on and on. And as you, you read through, you get this really beautiful picture of collaboration, people coming together around a, a cause, working together, and, and they finish the wall in just 52 days. It's amazing. It was like a, a miracle in a sense. And people looked at the wall when it was done. They're like, there's no way we could have done that alone. That, that's like God working through us. That was, that was awesome. Uh, but it, it was this collaboration where all these people coming together were able to produce something that nobody could have done on their own. And we, we get it. We see the power of collaboration. And, and it's, it's attractive, right? We see that and we're like, I want to be a part of something. And, and there's this other piece, other than just the productivity of collaboration, there's a unity that comes with collaboration, right? Where you come together, you're joined together, you're kind of like in this together, we unite. But the kind of unity that comes with collaboration is situational unity. 
which means it, it's contingent on the situation at hand, and it's confined to that situation. It's limited by that situation, and, and it's limited by time and by the scope of the project. So for you know, the Israelites rebuilding this wall, yes, they're, they're building, and it, it's great, but it only took 52 days. So if the wall and the building the wall is the situation behind their unity, what happens when the wall's done? What happens to the unity? It, it kind of it disperses and, and evaporates, right? Because situational unity is confined to the situation. So we have a, a bunch of people here at Beacon that are running the 6K on Saturday. Super excited about that. Uh, and my, my wife is spearheading the team. And you know, if my wife came to me a few months back and said, hey, Trevor, let's run this global 6K. You don't need to host site. You can just run it wherever you are. We will pay $50 each. We'll get bibs. We would have raised $100 for clean water projects in Africa, and it would have been fine. But instead, she came and she said, let's do this together as a church. And she got collaborators. And now we have like 40 or 50 runners, and we've raised over $4,000 for clean water projects in Africa. I know, it's amazing. And you know, we see this productive power. Yeah, yeah, you guys can give yourselves a hand. Uh, you see the productive power of... Uh, you know, doing something together, all for the same cause. We never, Lindsay and I could never make a $4,000 donation to World Vision. We are just not in that place. Uh, but we together are able to do this. And, and on Saturday is going to come along, and it's going to be so much fun. And there's going to be a sense of unity and camaraderie, and we'll be high-fiving and celebrating and everything. And on Sunday, we'll keep the celebration going. And then, but Monday is going to come around, and whatever unity and cohesion came with that race is going to dissipate. It's not going to filter any farther into our lives. It's, it's the thing. It happened. It was great. But now we'll just kind of go our separate ways, right? Because situational unity that comes with collaboration, it's tied. It's confined to that situation by time, but also by scope. So uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines really doing a lot for Waco. And they're starting to get some collaborators, people that are saying, like, yeah, we want to get behind this, to the point where the city of Waco itself said, hey, we're going to give you guys $200,000 in tax incentives to rebuild this kind of abandoned downtown warehouse space. And they're like, yeah, this is great. And so the community kind of rallies around this project of rebuilding what is now Magnolia Market and the silos. And they did a fantastic job, and you know, everybody kind of played their part. Uh, and now, to, at this point, 15,000 people every week visit the silos in downtown Waco. It's very cool to see. It's starting to reshape that entire neighborhood. But the, the sense of community and unity that they had really only existed around this one project, to the point where the, the same city execs who said, hey, let's give them a tax incentive to do this project for the sake of the community, Turned around and said, the community's doing a, a little bit better. There's a lot of people, the businesses. We should really reassess the value of all the surrounding properties, which is natural. You know, it's somewhat to be expected, except for a lot, a lot of these businesses, it doubled, some of them even tripled their tax assessment, pushing many of them out of the community. And so this very project, which was supposed to be for the community, is now pushing people out of the community. Uh, and this can happen with collaboration. Because with collaboration, it's just tied to that one specific project. And we forget that, that the real project is the people, not, not the, the wall in the case of Nehemiah. And this is actually what we see in Nehemiah's case. If you, you turn over to chapter 5, there's this great unity around the wall. 
but it didn't extend beyond building the wall. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some are saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay, high, the, uh, pay the king's high tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. It got to this point where, yeah, they, they were rallying around the wall. Everybody was doing their part, but didn't extend. That unity didn't extend beyond the project of the wall. So it was like, when it came to the wall, it's like, hey, man, I got your back. We're in this together. But when it comes to feeding your family, that's more of a you problem. <laughs> and this can, can quickly become uh, the commonplace in churches, I think, even here at Beacon, where it's great. We can rally around a project, and we can forget that the, the real project is the people. <laughs> that, not that people are projects. Don't mishear me. But... But what we're building is a community. So who cares? Who cares if they build a wall, but this is the kind of community that they built? That's not a community that's worth protecting. Nehemiah came not to build a wall, but to build a community. And so he hears this, and he's, he's outraged, and he says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and officials. I told them, You're charging your own people interest? Now, now, this is important because this is actually illegal. This, like, breaks the law of God according to the law that God gave them uh, as they exited Egypt. In Exodus 22, it says, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because the cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So the fact that they're charging their own countrymen interest actually goes against the law of God in and of itself. But it was commonplace, and so they, they, they just did what was normal. Nehemiah continues, says, So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as it is possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what, are you, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. That's good, good. But let's stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. Nehemiah gets in there. He's like, guys, this is not good. We need, to, we need to make a change. What you're building right now, this is not a community worth saving. This is not a community worth protecting. We need to do some serious work here. And he calls them to a higher standard, not just of collaboration, but of, of genuine community. See, in collaboration, you get this sort of situational unity, but in real community, biblical community, you get this systemic unity. It's a unity that bleeds into every sphere of life where our lives are being shared and they're overlapping. 
And there's a few distinctives that as we kind of reflect over what Nehemiah is talking about here and what he's calling him to, that a few distinctives that allow us to understand what true biblical community looks like as opposed to just collaboration or just kind of being with each other. And, and the first one is an awareness of needs. So the, the people come and there's this outcry and nobody, nobody knew what the situation was before this. Nobody knew that people were selling their kids to slaves and, and selling their kids as slaves and they were, they were going hungry and their families were going hungry. Their lives were so isolated from one another that they didn't even know the needs. You know, like, it's easy to get this picture that the, uh, you know, the nobles and elders were just sitting fat and happy watching and laughing as, like, the poor people were doing their thing. But they probably they had no idea because their lives were just so separate. And this is such an easy thing to do. I think especially as suburbanites, like, we, we have our own communities, and we go to our homes, and our picket fences, and we get on our trains, and we go to our, but, like, our lives are so compartmentalized that, that very often, if there are people in need in this room, we wouldn't even know it. But this is the kind of community that Nehemiah is, is trying to cultivate here, where there's an awareness of needs, because our lives overlap. There's an intimacy of relationship. The, the second distinctive is uh, lifestyle adjustments made to accommodate the needs. So when he calls the leaders and the, the nobles to give back everything, I, you know, first reading, I'm thinking, I get this picture of like the nobles and the leaders as just being these super rich guys, kind of like Scrooge McDuck, like they're just diving into seas of money that they've been collecting and swimming around. And, you know, so when Nehemiah says, give this back, it's like, oh, it's no big deal. It was just kind of sitting over there collecting dust anyway. But have, have any of you ever gotten to the point where you made so much money that you're like, I don't even know what to do with it anymore. I'm just going to, it doesn't happen. <laughs> People don't get to a point where it's like, oh, well, now, now I have excess money. Because it, you know the drill. You make more money, and your lifestyle kind of expands to your new income. And then the idea of ever having to take a pay cut, to ever have to go backwards, that's the worst, <laughs> right? Because you get used to a certain lifestyle and, and to have to go back now, it's like, no, I just worked to get out of that. But for the, these nobles and officials, I'm, I'm sure they got accustomed to their lifestyle and, and what they were, and, and remember, this is during a famine. So for us, that, it's like, think of it being a recession. So already the nobles and officials are probably living on like a, a tighter austerity budget than they were used to. So they've already had to tighten things a little bit for them. And, and then, and then you, you think about how in, elsewhere in Nehemiah it says, it wasn't just the walls that were destroyed, the whole city. So their homes had been destroyed. So like these guys probably have plans to renovate their house. Like they already have the blueprints for the pool that's going to go out back. And, you know, they're already preparing to send their kids off to university. And, you know, they have you know, all of their budget in place. And now Nehemiah comes in and says, hey, you guys got to give all of this money back. This is going to require a lifestyle change for people. Not just a one-time gift, not just a, hey, you know, like, can you just be generous this one time? But they're going to probably have to change their lifestyle to accommodate the needs of others. And that's tough. I, uh, growing up, I was a wrestler. And so weight loss is a big part of wrestling, cutting weight and everything like that. And I, I, this might be different for you. But for me, I would much rather go three, four days without food like just living on ice chips for three or four days then have to eat healthy for the rest of my life. 
I would do that any day of the week because I love comfort food. I know it doesn't look like it. I am blessed with a fast metabolism, but I don't like to eat healthy. I mean, occasionally, but I don't want to do it all the time. To make that lifestyle change, I'd much rather do kind of this one-time thing here. You know, it's, it's different. It's easy to do a one-time thing. It's easy to be, kind of make a generous one-time donation. It's easy to kind of like get involved in this thing this one time, but to actually change your lifestyle to accommodate the needs of others, that's, that's a different level of commitment. It's, it's about not just giving from the excess that you have, but living in such a way that you actually create more excess, more margin to be generous with. This is a, a different level of, of generosity that requires a lifestyle change. The, the third distinctive is the humility to receive. Uh, and I think this might be the hardest one. Because for some of these people, receiving back these things, I mean, they're, they're kind of getting handouts. And in our culture, in our society, the idea of getting a handout is like, I, I, I don't take handouts from anybody. I don't take charity. You know, like I have to work. I have to earn what I get. And it's humiliating to say, guys, I've been working hard, and I've been doing everything I can, and I just I wasn't able to do it. I'm in need. I need help. I don't have what it takes. That, that takes humility. It's hard to say. It's hard to vocalize. And I think that happens even in this community where, where some of you might be dealing with things and there's a need and there are people around that are ready to help you, but they're waiting for you to ask, waiting to hear that there's a need that they can help with. But it's, it is humiliating unless we've already been humbled by the, the reality of the cross. I mean, as followers of Christ, right, as followers of Christ, we should be the first ones who are ready to ask for help when we need it because we should be the first ones who are aware that none of us is independent and self-sufficient, right? We need God for our sufficiency. We are entirely dependent on him. From the richest to the poorest, we, we recognize that everything we have, everything you have is a gift from God, that he could take it away in a heartbeat, that he could give you more just because he wants to. Like all of this is, is a gift from God. We are completely dependent on him. So for us to say, oh, I, don't, I can't ask for help, we're already living on the generosity of someone else. We should be the first to be able to admit when we need it. These are uh, some of the distinctives that we can kind of pull from a, a biblical community. And as we, we talk about community, it, it might seem shocking that we're talking so much about what you do with your material resources. And yet, for the scripture, it's so common that when it, it does talk about community, it does also talk about what we're doing with our material resources. Like, I want to think about community. I want to think, like, hanging out and grabbing a movie with some friends. Maybe we'll, like, have dinner together or something. But in Scripture, when it paints a picture of community, it always includes what we're doing with our material resources. When Israel first began as a nation, God gave them the law. And in that law, we're very uh, strict and specific guidelines about how to care for other people in the community to make sure that they have the material resources that they need so that nobody would be in need. And then you get to the New Testament and you get the church, right? And the church, which is like God's idyllic community here on earth. Uh, and in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the people, the church is born, and at the end of the chapter it says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. See, community, where there's this systemic unity, always involves what we're doing with our material resources. We are material people living in a material world. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to sing it. Uh, so <laughs> But we can't, we can't divorce these things from each other to say, oh, you know, community is just being together. But when it comes to material resources, that's a more of a me and my family thing. Oh, these things are intertwined. And that unity kind of, it, it weaves into all of these things consistently throughout scripture. But when we look at this kind of community, we also quickly realize it is not natural, right? This is not something that occurs naturally. Uh, our, our tendency is to, kind of provide for me and mine and let them do their thing and we'll just see where the chips fall. This is not natural. In fact, it, it's very likely that somebody after the message will come up to me and say, it sounds a lot like communism what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, and that's exactly what they'll sound like when they, uh, but <laughs> you know, you throw out communism, that C word, and we all get really uncomfortable because all of, every one of us knows communism does not work. They tried it a few times, different places. It, consistently does not work, because this is not natural, right? And so please, as I, I talk about this, I'm not talking about a political agenda. I'm not talking about you know, a, a nation socioeconomic. This is not something you can legislate. This is about us as a community. This is about the church, the local church, and the way that we connect and love and, and serve and care for one another. Uh, so please don't, don't mishear me in this being like a political thing. Uh, it's a, a different conversation. But, but this kind of community, it's still, it's unnatural. And the, the keystone of all of this is a verse that we see farther ahead in this chapter in Nehemiah. And we see, because Nehemiah, Nehemiah, he acts differently than the rest. It says in verse 14, Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the early, earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. And here's the key verse. It says, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy, on the people. This idea of living out of reverence for God, this is, this is the key to all of this because this community is unnatural. This is not how somebody just living their, their normal life, it's not what would happen, but if we're living our lives out of reverence for God, it's going to look different. Alexander McLaren, uh, he called Nehemiah an ancient nonconformist. He said, why did he, Nehemiah, not do what everyone else had done in like circumstances? His answer is beautifully simple, out of reverence for God. 
His religion went down into the little duties of common life and imposed on him a standard far above the maxims that were prevalent around him. Far above. See, he, he lived differently because he was living out of reverence for God. This idea of reverence for God, sometimes it's translated the fear of the Lord, but it's this idea, just Nehemiah is completely caught up in the awe and wonder and majesty of God. That he's in this like this state of worship where he's just, he is in awe of God. And he says, in this place where I'm, I'm in this place of reverence for God, I can't act like everybody else acts. I can't do it. And it says, instead. It says, you know, out of his reverence for God, he didn't act like that, but instead. See, where there is reverence for God, there is always a life that is lived instead. Let me say that again. Where there is true reverence for God, there is a life that is going to be lived instead. Instead of what is convenient, instead of what is normal, instead of what is accepted, instead of what is within my rights, instead of what is best for me and my family, instead of what everyone else expects of me, Nehemiah said, instead of what my predecessors did, instead of that, out of reverence for God, I'm going to live differently. Because where there is true reverence for God, there is a life that is lived instead. And that, that, that's the only thing that makes sense. Because most of the people around us are not living out of reverence for God. So why should our lives look like theirs? Why should our decisions look like theirs? There should be something different. There should be a life that is lived instead of what is normal. And this kind of community that Nehemiah talks about here is, is a community. It is an alternative community. It is an alternative lifestyle. It is a community of the people living instead of what is normal. This is crucial. And then you look at what Nehemiah actually does instead, and man, you get this picture of Jesus. Because the life that's lived instead, the life that is lived out of reverence for God, instead of doing what the world does, they tend to do a lot of things that resemble God, and particularly what he did through Jesus. And so you see Nehemiah, he says, I'm not going to use the riches that are rightfully mine. I'm actually going to, to share these with others. I'm going to welcome people to my table to sit and enjoy the luxuries of, of my splendor because the burden is too much for them to bear. I'm going to bear that burden for them. And, and we get this picture in Nehemiah. We get a picture of Jesus because Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah. He is the one who had divinity in his grasp. And he said, I'm not going to use my divine rights for my own advantage. Instead, he humbled himself becoming human, to become a servant, even obedient to death. Scriptures say that he, Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. That on account of Jesus, we now have a seat at the table, the, the banquet table with the Father in heaven where we get to share in all of his, his luxuries forever. And the people around you are going to be sitting at that table with you on account of, of this Jesus. And, and it didn't cost an ox and six choice sheep and a couple of poultry. The price of your seat at the table was the blood of the lamb. It's amazing. This is, this is our God. And this is the God that Nehemiah, he's just caught up in the awe and wonder and majesty of this God. And when we are caught up in reverence for God, we live a life Instead of looking like the rest of the world, looks a lot more like Jesus. 
And this kind of community that we're advocating for is a community that can only be lived out of reverence for God. It's, it's an instead sort of community. And I want to invite you to pursue that. And there's uh, a few ways to respond as you, you're, you're considering this. One, cultivate your reverence for God. If, if we miss that part, the rest, just, just skip it. <laughs> Having this kind of community about the reverence for God, it's not even, it's not even worth it. It doesn't work because we're going to try to turn it into something else. Cultivate your reverence for God. You know, uh, many of you are participating in the reading plan as so you're reading the Bible every day. And I encourage you, keep that up. Don't let it be like a religious exercise or just a, uh, an academic routine, but really allow that to, to just meditate on the awe and wonder of God, what the scriptures reveal about him. Take that time to, to marinate in the truth of the cross so that you can increasingly live each day, each moment of each day, out of reverence for God. The second thing I want to invite you to do is, is question your consumption. We're New Yorkers, we're skeptical, we question a whole lot of things. Uh, it's good in an era of uh, alternative facts, we should ask questions and you know, challenge things. But one thing we're not always great at questioning is the, kind of the social norms for consumption. We just kind of do it because it's normal and it's, it's okay. And you know, the only question we often ask is, can I afford it? And even that we don't often ask. We ask, can I pay it off in 10 years? Uh, but we should question these things. Some of them are actually kind of silly. When I was in, uh, in college, I'm the youngest of four, so now like, all the kids are out of the house. And my parents were kind of in their late 40s, and they'd been, you know, at this point, making more than they ever did before, had more resources. So they decide they're going to put an addition on their house and renovate the house, which is totally fine, not challenging that. But at the same time, it's a little silly because at this point where they have the fewest amount of people living in the house, they have the biggest house they ever had, it's like, Nobody questioned it. I didn't question it. They didn't question it. It's just like the only question they asked is, can we afford it? And, you know, like one of the things that they, you know, people say in these situations is like, oh, well, you know, when the kids and the grandkids come into town, we'll have room for them, which like rarely ever happens. But ironically, the one time where I know it definitely did happen was about a year and a half, two years after the addition was put on. The whole family came together for my mom's funeral. And I know that's like a super morbid plot twist. Don't, don't feel bad. She is like waiting her seat at that banquet table. Like she's not worried about the master bedroom that she's missing out on because she has all the luxuries of heaven awaiting her and she's like with her king. She's in a good place. She's not concerned. But the irony is the time and money and energy to build this addition, to have this dream home that she could grow old in, stripped away in a moment's notice because... That can happen at any moment. And we as, as followers of Christ should be asking the question, not can I afford it, but can, how, does this, how does this impact eternity? All right? On the, the topic of morbidity, because that's always a fun transition, my, uh, my great-grandmother passed away on Thursday. Again, don't feel bad. She was 107 years old. Yeah, life, full life up to like the last day she was singing hymns of praise and everything. And uh, she too is awaiting her seat at that banquet table and she's excited to see Jesus. Like it's, it's all good. But most of us probably won't get 107 years on, on earth. But let's say we do. And we live out those 107 years and we have all the luxuries and we get all this stuff. And in a thousand years, she won't remember 
10,000 years from now, it's going to be like, oh, that happened at some point. I had a house or something. I don't know. Uh, but we, we get so caught up in the here and now. But as followers of Christ, man, if we're living in awe and reverence for God, we should question not can I afford it, not question, like, is it socially acceptable, but how is this impacting eternity? Because there's only one thing around you that is eternal, and that is other people. Man, these people are going to live forever, and you're going to be seated across the table at the banquet, and you're going to be like, well, this is my pool down on earth, and this is my, look. oh, this is our brand new addition that we put on. They're going to be like, oh, yeah, I remember when I couldn't feed my family. Uh, that's going to be an awkward conversation at the dinner table. Not that that's not going to happen. Anyway, <laughs> but... But the reality is we get so caught up in the here and now, question these things. I'm not saying don't do them, but at least ask the question. How is, is my financial decision, my consumption, impacting eternity? Lastly, commit to a growth group. Growth groups, this is a place where this kind of community is going to develop. It's not going to happen for an hour on Sunday in a hot and sweaty room like this. You're all going to bolt out of here, and I get it. Uh, growth groups are the place where you can get to know each other, share life, Commit to this. If you're not a part of a growth group, get in one. If you are a part of a growth group, commit to it. Like, don't just kind of like, uh, and don't just commit to being there, you know, once a week, but commit to those people, to sharing life, to asking how they're doing, to, you know, adjusting your lifestyle if need be to care for their needs and uh, making room in your schedule and your finances, the margin to care for these people. But this is the place where this sort of community is going to be fostered. And, and it is so important. It is indispensable to the Christian life. In fact, this sort of community was part of Christianity when it started. It is the, the dream for the church, the dream that Jesus had from the very beginning. And in fact, one of the, the last prayers that we have recorded from Jesus is a prayer for you. In John 17, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about the disciples, the 12. He says, it's not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. Like He's praying for us. We're the ones who believe in him through their message. It says, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Complete unity, not situational unity, systemic unity. This is Jesus' prayer for us. Why? Because then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And this, this sort of community, it's not natural. It only can be produced where, where each of us are living out in, in reverence for God. But Jesus is so, so dedicated to this. He's praying for this because the world will know who Jesus is on account of our love for one another. So I, I encourage you, wherever you're at, take these, these next steps to cultivate your reverence for God. Question your consumption to connect with people in a meaningful way so that we can build this kind of community. And man, I pray for this kind of community here at Beacon. I really do hope that it gets fostered as a whole in our growth groups, all of this, because it, it, it is Jesus' prayer as well. Let me pray for you. The uh, band's going to come up as we pray and uh, just give us a, an opportunity to, even here and now, reflect on and, and cultivate our awe and wonder of God. Man, he's amazing. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll have time to worship. Father, in your, your great grace and compassion, you, 
have provided everything that we need and you've given so much of yourself, sacrificing your own son so that we could have a seat at the table, Not, not as foreigners or strangers, but as your children, Father, adopted into your family. And I pray that we will love each other as family, that we will be so caught up in, in the awe and wonder of who you are that we'll be able to invest in this kind of just beautiful community where our lives are so intertwined and interdependent on each other and on you. Father, we pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen.